This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. We will also explore threats to meaningful engagement in sport and movement culture practices and ask questions about what we can learn about the human condition through our involvement in sport. The guests are leading scholars in human and social sciences of sport who will share their explorations in a scholarly as well as a personal context. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Today, we will be discussing sport and meaning under the COVID pandemic and how this collective disruption might have led us to see sport differently. I have the honor to have Dr. Mark Nesty, who has pioneered the application of existential psychology in sport, with me today to explore these questions. We will discuss how existential psychology can help us understand some of the issues we are facing, but also more generally about what the COVID pandemic has made us aware of about the human condition more generally. Mark will also share some insights on applied sports psychology work with athletes, as well as explore personal meaning of sport in his own life. Mark has recently stepped down as Associate Professor in Sports Psychology at Liverpool John Moores University, where he was also course leader for the MSc Sports Psychology Programme. He is now working as a British Psychological Society Chartered Sports Psychologist with the first team players and staff at Yorkshire County Cricket Club and Aston Villa. He was the executive director of the Centre for the Study of Sport and Spirituality at York St. John University and is research lead at the John Paul II Foundation for Sport. Mark was one of my PhD supervisors and he has definitely played an important role in my own academic development. When I was uh, doing my postdoc at Liverpool John Moores University with him, we also wrote a book together with the title Meaning and Spirituality in Sport and Exercise, Psychological Perspectives. I also know that he has had a wide influence on the research and professional philosophy of many young sports psychology professionals who have studied at Liverpool John Moores University, as well as elsewhere. And so thank you, Mark, so much for finding the time to talk with me today and, and explore sport the meaning under the COVID pandemic. Okay, really great to be here, Nora. And uh, at this current moment in time, uh, time is a resource that I have plenty of. That will be very good for our listeners as well. So um, I think I would like to start with your work on critical moments. You have written about critical moments in athletes' lives, whether it's an injury or kind of a sudden 
winning something you didn't expect or change of coaches or change of teams. But often we are talking about this and you are writing about those as a kind of individual important moments in their lives. But this COVID crisis and this collective disruption is something quite different, isn't it? It is, I suppose, and we shouldn't extend this out to um, everyone um, who's been affected beyond, if you like, the sport and athletic population, because then the uh, the conversation um, will be much more complex. But nevertheless, it's worth remembering that people who take part in sport and uh, athletics at whatever level, but particularly when that level is uh, a very uh, high standard or in professional domain, that if you like, these people have got two things to deal with. They've got their um, high-level sport demands and, and the professional world that they live in, as well as, if you like, their um, personal world that they share with most of the rest of us who don't take part in sport um, at that level anyway, in, in that level, that type of uh, uh, involvement and meaning. So I think this is really interesting because I know later in the uh, discussion we'll get onto some of my applied work um, and I'll, I'll speak about it in a way that you know obviously won't break any any confidentiality issues. But it is, it is interesting to remember that particularly with high-level athletes, uh, they are human beings as well. So they've been sharing in all of the sorts of challenges, different types of challenges that we've all encountered in this very strange, difficult and unusual time. So um, that's the first thing to say. I think that's really important to the psychology that um, I'm interested in, theoretical perspectives. I think that you are as well. So when we talk about holistic, I'm really talking about you know, both the person and, if you like, the athlete themselves. So if, if we just move on very briefly to critical moments, um, I know we discussed this at the time when you were in, in Liverpool, at Liverpool John Moore's with us. Maybe we made too much of it, but we wanted to make the point that there are um, junctures, typically within your athletic career, within your athletic sport life, where you know really difficult things or really positive and good things happen that make you um, eventually maybe see things in a different way. So I think the, uh, the COVID experience has, has done that both at a, an athletic level, if you like, at a sporting level, but also for some people at a very personal level. So maybe we can you know, try and talk about that. Yeah, I think that would be a really nice start. And thinking about your work in existential psychology, and, and you would be clearly the pioneer in in using this uh, lens to understand sport and, and the psychology in sport, what would be some of the existential themes and existential issues that you would pick up when we start exploring uh, the disruption that was brought by the COVID in our lives? Well, I suppose, first of all, it's it's still ongoing, isn't it, in different countries and in different ways. And, uh, you know, whatever our views, and let's not go there in terms of whether we think it's been handled well in some places and, and, and badly in others, and what that might mean. Um, the, the first existential issue is is most certainly anxiety. And, and anxiety around, you know, in sporting terms, and again, particularly at high-level sport, or where sport is really significant in somebody's life, um, the anxiety around, you know, what, what will happen to, you know, competitive structures and schedules have been disruptive. Uh, training is not as it was. 
Um, and you know what will that do in terms of performance? What what will that do in terms of you know psychological well-being and its potential impact on performance? What about contracts? You know, some sports have lost you know huge amounts of money, and down the line they're expecting to lose even more. That will have implications for you know contracts, the size of them, and the number potentially down the line. So there's real um, existential anxiety, literally, about existence. Um, so existence in terms of you know vocation, in terms of your job, your professional career. So that's definitely the case with people in sport, be they participants um, as athletes or coaches or administrators. And then alongside that, the other existential issue that's facing, if you like, just about everybody in the world in different ways, individually and collectively, is you know this has reminded people that we are um, not immortal. We are mortal beings. And uh, and that illness and um, and death um, are uh, you know unavoidable um, and maybe if I can speak in my own context you know in, in a Western in the Western context and particularly obviously in, in my own country that I live in a British context um, I think that this crisis for many people has created a t- literally existential anxiety around existence. Whether they acknowledge this or whether they would verbalize it this way, people are are maybe shaken so much because they now begin to realize that actually, um, you know, death is real. And I, and I know that might sound like a really morbid and awful thing to talk about in a podcast that's talking about something as life-giving as sport, but, but I'm, I'm sorry, it's a reality and a truth. And, and maybe in a Western context, um, for a whole host of reasons, and we'll all have different accounts of this, but some fundamental reasons um, that most of our life proceeds as though there isn't such a thing as death. And, and so this has brought it quite vivid um, into you know, the, the consciousness of people individually and collectively. And, and I'm not saying this is a great thing. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. I'm saying it just is. And, and I think that's affected everybody, including people in sport in different ways. Yeah, I think that then brings us to kind of asking the question of what is the role of sport in human life when we are facing this kind of collective crisis? And now we are talking about questions about life and death. So um, earlier in this podcast, I talked to Emily Ryle about um, she was talking about sport being in the end, it's it's not essential for our lives. This is something that you also write about in our book, that in the end of the day, sport is not something that we actually need. It's Sport is not about life and death, whereas now that we are talking about the COVID, we are talking about life and death. So where does the role of sport kind of come into the picture of our lives now? I think it's a, a, a really um, interesting moment for this very topic of, of what sport actually means. And so I'll just take a few steps backwards. And if we say, if we think of sport and, and the great writer Joseph Pieper writing about, about leisure, and he's including within that sport, art, music, a whole host of areas of life which are not essential and fundamental to our literal bodily existence. And yet, much effort, energy, passion is devoted to that. It has to tell you something about the human condition. So, 
maybe a way to look at it is it's a kind of paradox, is that sport is clearly not, as art isn't, as music isn't, essential to our physical existence. Um, but it's essential in other ways. And if you look at the reaction you know, around the world to um, when sport, at whatever level, whether it's spectator sport or participatory sport, when that's been reduced, and the incredible elation amongst those who love their sport at different levels, and different types of sport, um, and, and deep joy that's actually happened when this thing that is about nothing. So take professional sport out because that's clearly a different category. But for the 99% of us who take part in sport, despite how some people seem to behave in competitive sport, but then that's their ego. But essentially, sport is fundamentally about nothing. Nothing is produced at the end of any sports event. Somebody wins, somebody loses, but literally nothing is produced. I mean, it's even more extreme than maybe music, where you've actually got something you can hear again, or a theatre production where it can actually be played again. So it's literally one of those areas of life where it is, as, as the English expression, it's will-o'-the-wisp. There, there is absolutely nothing left. So it's so much about experience. And I think that's why we need to step back and say, well, wait a minute, what are these experiences? That they're so powerful that so many people, whether they're wonderful at it or not, it doesn't really matter. The golf courses around where I live here in Scotland were heaving as soon as they could get back on. People who are shocking at the game like me, alongside people who are tremendous and everybody in between. So I think this is a fantastic moment for saying, well, what is it that sport provides? And I think, you know, G.K. Chesterton, the master in English writing anyway of paradox, sport's about paradox. It's about absolutely nothing, but it's clearly about something extremely, extremely important to us, psychologically and even spiritually. I think we can hear that from all, with all the different people who we talk with who are passionate about the sport. On my part, like everything has been cancelled. I was supposed to have a Thai boxing match. So many friends of mine have been looking forward to their running competitions. Everything has been cancelled. And just like you say, it's ultimately it's really about nothing for the most of us. So... I, I think when you put it in a way that it, it is a paradox and that actually is kind of the reason why we should be asking these questions about why are we so passionate about something that is ultimately about nothing. So so when we say it's about nothing, I think maybe we can be a little bit more precise and say that it's about nothing in the sense of some kind of material output. You know, we're, we're not making cars here. We're not producing food. Um, however, when we step into you know the physical realm, obviously we know people get injured. We know there are downsides, but but typically most sports, however active they are, physically active, will bring physical benefits. And we know, and let's not rehearse them, the psychological benefits. They are so well known now um, that it's almost you know questioning why sports psychologists and psychology of sport are constantly talking about them. Everybody really knows them by now. But maybe the more interesting one, the deeper one, and the one that I know both of you know ours have spent time looking at, and we think the psychologists have, have maybe missed a little bit on this relative to the philosophers at least, is that there's some deeper meaning going on, and and these are the words that you know that I'm personally interested in at the moment because one I think that it reminds us that sport is is not really about 
some kind of material output, that in itself reminds us that we're not actually just literally material ourselves. There's some of the greater needs that we need. And, and let me put you know, precise words on them. I'm, I'm talking about a, a desire for joy, an encounter with beauty. Um, and also alongside that typically goes some kind of sacrifice of some sort and maybe some pain and suffering of some sort. Some people would dispute whether you can use those words, but they weren't cycling in the Scottish hills as I was last night out of condition. And I can tell you, I was in pain for 30 minutes going up those hills. But what joy when I got to the top in terms of the view. So that's fine. That's not real pain, but it actually is. But that's another topic. But So I think there's deeper meanings in the sport encounter. And I wish that, you know, our um, academics, but I wish that people and hope that more people who coach and teach and introduce people to sport will see it this way. We'll, we'll see it as much more than just some kind of physical exercise. They'll see that it has possibilities to um, give people a chance to, those who want to anyway, experience those words that many people talk about in music and the arts, joy and beauty and those types of words. I don't see why in sport they shouldn't be encountered by those of us that, that love that particular type of human pursuit. So I, th I think this point that we're in right now leads us closer to, I hope anyway, an understanding that, that sport you know, played properly in the right spirit, um, has some way of pointing towards a deeper meaning than just the physical or even the psychological. And if we go to critical moments and if we go back to this kind of existentialist thought about what's the value of critical moments for our human lives, so I think we can go back to Heidegger who was writing about kind of breakdowns as this potential moments of insight when we actually see the world for what it is or or we are challenged to look into what why is this important for me why i've been doing sport for example I, I think you know we just discussed existential anxiety but maybe the other two areas i'd, I'd like to discuss that are existential maybe, maybe we'll mention courage as well um some existential writers have, have drawn on that, and others who are closely aligned, a psychologist at least. Um, but the two that I'd like to mention now would be um, uh, authenticity uh, and and isolation and, and loneliness, and uh, the distinction between those two words. So just start with authenticity, but both in terms of my applied work, my practical work, which is, is with um, you know elite-level, world-class professional athletes at the moment. I'm working in two team sports environments with people at that level and this doesn't mean everyone of course you know people will express it differently people will encounter these things differently but generally speaking I think a critical moment such as we are in at the moment will is making some people as I say whether they are the athletes or people who support them in different roles maybe step back a little bit and reflect a little bit more deeply about you know what it is that they're doing the, the value of it what it means and and how how they want to do that better, you know it, it's 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 built into us, and many psychologists believe this. Certainly, some of the cognitive psychologists would agree as well, but the humanistic psychologists and, and, and existential was certainly that the desire for whether we call it self actualization or self fulfillment, excellence, a more basic way of describing it. All those sorts of things have been written about. It seems that that's that's part of who we are as human beings, irrespective of what it is we're trying to achieve. Um, 
and and to step back and and you know look at the reasons some of the reasons why maybe you haven't done as well and enjoyed what you're doing as much as you should is motivated if you like and and I, I hear people saying to me I want to do this from now on more on my terms never completely on your terms there is no such thing as total freedom is, and we know the existential idea of situated freedom such a wonderful phrase it, it tries to say that you as a human being because there are other human beings you have freedom but it's always to some degree impacting on other people so it's not a complete freedom that would be license it's, it's freedom with responsibility and but it's still freedom and and so the freedom to try within sometimes very difficult environments as professional sport can be very fraught challenging and difficult that's just how they are um to try to be more fully yourself because because people know this at a literally existential level they know that the best they can be is typically when they are themselves and not trying to be someone else and and there are philosophers and psychologists not enough in sports psychology in, in my view over these years but who've written you know quite powerfully about why that is um the best way to be it doesn't mean that you will achieve everything um, but it does mean that you make it more likely and that there will be deep enjoyment that comes from this so I think I strive to be a little bit more authentic. We know nobody can be fully authentic all of the time. But to be a little more authentic and a little less authentic is a, is a theme, an existential theme I've been picking up this last few months. And uh, if I can just go on quickly, um, nor in relation to isolation and loneliness, I think... Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I, I think you, I mean, you can explain maybe um, beyond what, what I need to say here about the, the, the existential... Um, distinction between these two closely related words in English, uh, and I'm sure in other languages, but but from an existential point of view, in a psychological point of view, um, quite different. And uh, I think you know, athletes, performers, coaches, and others are understanding somewhat better than others, of course, that even in a period of isolation, which is what we're having, um, it's quite possible to uh, find resilience um, in this period of adversity. The, the, the people have been saying to me, my word, we're surprised that our athletes are more resilient than we thought you know, they were. They're, they're finding out that actually without the support network and mechanism that they have around them you know, 24-7, that um, they've got resources. And some of those resources involve you know, going back to reflect on important things in their life, um, maybe having closer relationships with people who are inside or outside of sport, a smaller number, maybe in some cases reading. Some have taken up, you know, learning to play musical instruments, which was remarkable. I was so excited when three three high-level athletes told me that's what they were trying to do. Um, it's the sort of thing psychologists would suggest, how wonderful when it comes from the ground. So people dealing with isolation and realising that despite the anxiety of isolation, um, they're able to find uh, activities that can contribute to their lives as well as, you know, psychologically help them to prepare to deal with, uh, you know, the performance when they're returning their well-being now and, and understanding the difference maybe between loneliness and isolation um, and understanding that when they were surrounded by many, many people who were there to support them, some of these athletes in one-to-one -one sessions, you know, over the years that have what, for what, 25 years, 30 years with people at this level, will talk about feeling very alone 
i.e. lonely. And, uh, and so maybe this is, you know, reminding people in different ways that it's about the quality of relationships that count. It's not about numbers. It's about quality and it's about genuineness and authenticity. So, so I think th those two existential themes have been, in different ways, something that, that people are encountering now in a way that maybe they might not have done so vividly and clearly without this, this crisis. I absolutely agree on that, and I think it's quite remarkable how differently people have been responding to this isolation that has been imposed on us. So I think, uh, yeah, several people told me that they actually enjoyed some of these elements of solitude. So solitude would be the more positive experience of of being alone and actually enjoying that and, and kind of... Uh, feeling that that's something that is freeing your creativity and, and giving you positive energy, whereas others would experience loneliness, which would be then the negative sense of being disconnected from people. And I think for sports people also, kind of, if you are not training with your group and if you're not training with your coach, sometimes that can be kind of the time when you can experiment and you can maybe practice some new skills or practice the things that you were not so good at before. And when you are doing that alone, you have your own time and your own pace and you can maybe experiment if you can learn to do that differently. So I think that kind of time to spend more time alone practicing can also have a lot of value for athletes of different levels. I think that's really important what you're you're saying, and I know you're picking that up in in a different arena to where I've been operating in this last year or so since I've uh, retired from university life, um, yeah. and in my applied applied work across a range of different sports, maybe five or six sports I've been working with this this year, and uh, and then and then linking it back into my reading and the work that we've we've tried to do together over these last few years, and and I I, I just um, recount to you. And I certainly won't say where it was from, but it was really quite interesting. A very, very experienced person in high-level sport, and a deep-thinking individual in in all times, but um, expressing how pleased and surprised, even not shocked, maybe, but surprised, but pleased. But on reflection, then realizing maybe this is what should have been happening, and it took something like this to maybe bring this into light. Finding out that um, that players, and not all, of course, and not equally, um, but players from all different circumstances and age groups and levels of experience, but I'm talking about professional and high-level athletes here. Um, and I mentioned resilience before. We'll just say a little bit about this right now. Um, but finding out that they're more resourceful, they're more independent, they're more resilient, literally more resilient than they um, or he had imagined them to be and that what this really says is that what was required was to give people space and time and 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 support and the support is there and it's quite interesting how if i compare his reaction and his conclusion which was mark i think maybe we do too much for people um out of the best of intentions we've actually prevented their growth and of course, these are perfect existential themes around uh, adversity, around the difficulty of facing up to existential anxiety, not, not anxiety that's clinical and, and neurotic, but normal anxiety that is uncomfortable because 
you're having to think for yourself. You're having to develop a little bit of courage to decide, shall I reduce my training, increase my training, experiment, do something different, as you say, Nora, and take responsibility for that. All those existential words that have been such a hard pill to swallow for much of psychology that sees them in such negative ways, and yet here's a way of viewing the negative as a positive in a genuine way. I compare his his sentiments and views to somebody else who certainly for the first few months um, wanted to bombard, and that's how I saw it anyway, to bombard athletes with huge amounts of information. And I've seen that up and down the country in lots of different ways, sharing with colleagues, sending me material saying, what do you think about this? That the it looks like it's the support staff, the coaches and others who are more worried than actually the athletes, that they want to do too much for them, that they are, for the best of reasons, of course, for the best of intentions, they want to keep them focused and motivated and address their well-being. And I think one of the themes coming through here is, actually, more people have got more resources than you imagine. And the other one is, support people, hold steady, and actually during this time, some people are actually growing. Some people are developing in a way that you couldn't otherwise. And so if I just finish on this, you know in my career I was highly critical of the excessive use of mental skills training. Not mental skills training, not doubting its value, but the excessive use of it. Particularly where it looked like it was being used to avoid, if you like, what we're experiencing now, which is being thrown back on your own resources, thrown back on something that can be quite uncomfortable and anxiety-inducing, making your own decisions, making your own choices, experimenting, as you said. And so some of the programs that have been aimed at developing resilience, in my view, have got as much chance of developing resilience as, well, I won't say anything with a bad swear word because you might have listeners who understand English that well, but really are going to be mostly very ineffective. The way to develop resilience is to support people through adversity and allow them to stumble and experiment and succeed and fail and grow. In other words, an entire account of what existential psychology would write about is how real learning, authentic learning takes place. And and I, I hope that, you know, maybe some of your listeners will, will go and now have a little bit of a deeper look at transpersonal psychology, existential psychology, and, and other approaches in psychology that, that have um, a similar theme, which, you know, I know we look at this slightly differently, but I think it, it, it most closely connects to uh, a, a kind of a philosophy of, of, um, of realism, and others would say it's common sense. But there are many psychologists who disagree vehemently with what I've been saying. That's okay. I, I'm, I'd be happy if they go and have an engagement, have some kind of um, study and reading around some of this literature and, and then we can have a better debate. Yeah, I think there were so many different ideas to kind of hang on to and, and develop a bit further. I think the first thing you said was about that a lot of people who are working in the support roles like coaches and sports psychologists would be keen to do a lot for their athletes and sometimes too much for their athletes, which might be actually... Uh, hindering their growth 
and you talked about mental skills and I think this would be the time when a lot of people would find it appealing to do some goal setting and and other kind of techniques that are part of the mental skills. Um, and if we look at this whole situation from the existential approach, and you already talked about it quite a lot, what would be kind of your advice or or some of the things uh, to kind of think about for those practitioners who are interested in existential approach? What could be the things that you might want to be doing in this kind of situation with your athletes? I think the literature um, on counselling approaches, on how to engage in dialogue with your athletes, the existential literature and, and closely associated approaches in psychology, I think for practitioners that's a great place to start. Because even though we've both studied, and we're, we're certainly not experts, but we've studied existential philosophy and psychology to some degree, we, we both know that for a variety of reasons it's 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 quite difficult. Um, certainly it's so unusual for many people that it's, it's um, quite off-putting to begin with and, and might sound uh, rather complex and obscure at times. But I think when you read the literature on counselling and counselling psychology and the existential-based approaches, when you're trying to understand the value of encounter, presence, dialogue, and how those sessions take place, I think practitioners and others, but practitioners, whether they are psychologists or not, quite frankly, including coaches, I think they would recognise and, and understand what's been said there much more easily. And and the, the second thing on that, Nora, is to say, suppose that the overarching message that's in the existential approach would be, despite the fact that here I am using lots and lots of words because that's what I'm meant to be doing in this session, um, and maybe people who know me closely think this must be difficult for me to do, and it is. Um, my my reason, I think, for liking the existential approach is that I like two things. I like lots of words, and I like total silence. And what I don't like is anything in the middle. And I have to be careful with myself not to be extreme in that position. But I like people who can express themselves and verbalise, and I also see that the other side that is actually closely related to it is complete silence. And so I would say that the attraction of the existential approach working with athletes is that it massively, hugely emphasises the power of silence in the dialogue. And the reason for that is to allow the athlete and the performer to find their ways, their own unique ways, albeit we have an idea of, if you like, what are the optimum, what would be the best that would psychology from different disciplines suggest but nevertheless that will all be dead that will not have any effect unless the person themselves finds their way and their own unique way there and that requires silence so that would be for me the biggest message would be for practitioners would be allow space allow the opportunity for growth use silence more and that doesn't literally necessarily mean silence but it means not giving answers not taking over sessions, allowing struggle, allowing discomfort. I've spoken about that in my sessions. I'm sure it's been misunderstood that my best sessions are usually quite uncomfortable. But that's not deliberately so. That's because the idea is for the other person to take control of the learning and struggle at their own rate. 
And I'm there, if you like, to help that in some shape or form, but by walking shoulder by shoulder. So that would be the big message coming out from the whole experience we're talking about now, the critical moments that have been brought to um, relief in this experience that we're having across the world, is for authentic learning, true, true deep learning to take place, um, give people space, give them time, challenge them, allow them to challenge themselves. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.